0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: Sometimes they might perceive certain fields like urology as more replaceable because it's a major market. They're happy to recruit people in. But that's why it comes back to developing your practice and your brand and your own sense of value in those first several years of your employment contract because you don't want a hospital to want to try to replace you because that means ultimately, I hate to say it, you didn't show enough value because they're willing to actually take a loss for a couple of years if they bring in someone new.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. The Jose Oche Silva as your host this week. Today we have Dr. Jay Seaman. He did residency at Temple University Hospital and a fellowship in urology reconstruction and prosthesis from UT Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Seaman is vice chair and professor of the Department of Urology at Fox Chase Cancer Center. He is director of reconstructive urology and fellowship director of reconstructive and prosthetic urology also at Fox Chase Cancer Center. Welcome to Back Table
1: again, Jay. Thanks so much for having me, Jose. I'm excited for our conversation. So yeah, so so Jay was with Aditya, our co-host, a couple of months
0: ago, and they discussed how you show your worth in your first job. And today we're
1: going to talk about what happens afterwards, right? That's right. I mean, I, I think what happened was Aditya and I, I think, had a, a really, really energetic and fun conversation about showing value in your job. And ever since that back table, I guess, podcast episode, so many people, some locally, some nationally, have reached out to me and have really said that this is a great topic. And they thanked me for doing it and asked if I would be willing to sort of share more. And I said, sure, I don't know how big of an expert I am, but I'm happy to sort of just go through some of the things that I've learned along the way about how value is demonstrated in really a urology position. And that's
0: super important. I mean, so sometimes I think we either oversell us or, or sell ourselves short. So definitely having the tools and the knowledge we can definitely do more with what we know. So let's talk about first the architecture of the health system, what it entails and then we'll go with the logistics and through the business of medicine and all that.
1: Absolutely. so here's how I think about this I mean and again you know this th- this is speaking some in generalities. But I think it'll be helpful for most urologists that try to sort of internalize some of the things that we're talking about today. Ultimately, how I look at urology positions are, there's the old dictum was academics versus private practice. And now I would say that really the sort of dictum is health system employee versus private practice urologist. And private practice urologist, I think, is really a term where that encompasses several different types of practices. Now, you could have sort of a solo practice. Now, if you look at AUA census data, solo practices are actually fewer and far between than, you know, I think the past 10 to 20 years. And usually these small pod groups in urology, especially in more major markets, have conglomerated together to create sort of what I call a mega urology group. And, you know, there's private equity, of course, that has taken over some of those groups. And that's probably another podcast in and of itself. Health systems, on the other hand, also employ urologists, and I think that fits under the umbrella of academic urology that was a conventional term. And nowadays, it also really, I think, encompasses urologists that work for a health system, but might not necessarily have an academic sort of slant to their position. So a health system itself, coming to the health system positions, really, I think, are dynamic and also challenging to understand. So I'll try to simplify what I've learned about how health systems are organized. Generally, a health system, as I see it, are numerous small to large companies that help support an entire healthcare sort of system. Let me give you an example. There's the hospital and how the hospital sort of sees patients. Let's call that company number one. There's the group of physicians that work for that hospital. Let's call that company number two. And that's usually the medical group. Sometimes these systems are affiliated with the medical school. Let's call that a separate company. But then different health systems have multiple hospitals within them. So each hospital might have multiple corporations. All of them are sort of individual hospitals that constitute a corporation. And some health systems might have separate medical groups based on the complexity of how large that system is. So some medical groups might have a medical group corporation just for primary care physicians, some might have them just for specialty care physicians, including urologists, and some might just have an entire corporation for a medical group that encompasses both specialty care and primary care physicians. Now, what have I explained? What I've really explained is these healthcare systems can get complicated, and they all constitute numerous small corporations that together come under one sort of budget to give money or make money, really. And other corporations that usually exist within a health system include, let's say, a malpractice corporation. So a lot of big systems have their own malpractice sort of carrier and company that helps manage litigation. There's, you know, some of them have a transport company, if they have an ambulance company that brings patients back and forth. Needless to say, there are numerous corporations within a health system. All of those corporations work together to help drive the mission of that organization. And most health systems have a mission that I think revolves around taking care of patients. And ultimately, when you're a physician for a health system, you technically work for that health system, but you also are really an employee of the medical group, which I said is a subcorporation of that health system. Is that sort of encompass it, Jose? At
0: least in my model, that, that's how it is. We're paid by the medical group, but we serve a hospital. My office, for example, is in a hospital. We have multiple hospitals. Mine is one of the satellites of the main hospital. Sometimes I will say the vision of the hospital in terms of urology is not the same as the medical group and then there can be friction. And it is often a game of power and you see a struggle, who's in charge? Is it the medical group? Is it the hospital? Because sometimes the hospital, they want to keep me happy, but then the medical group, well, we cannot do that.
1: And vice versa. It just becomes like, well, who do I talk to? (laughs) That's right. You know, ultimately, I used to say this, and I still say this often. If you look at your position as, who is my boss? Ultimately, the higher you go within your practice, you actually have more bosses. Because ultimately, if you're in urology, yeah, there's the leader of your urology group. That's one version of a boss. If that's you, or if that's not you, I guess that's okay. But that person usually reports to the leader of the medical group, but they also report to the leader of each of those other corporations. So my health system has multiple hospitals, and each hospital has its own interests. In fact, they, yes, want to take care of patients, but each hospital doesn't necessarily want to take care of the patients of the other hospital. They want to take care of the patients of their hospital. So your medical group, whichever one you're working for, really has to sort of I guess what I say be Switzerland and try to be neutral but like you said there are politics that always enter the fold of how a medical group functions and how a urology group within the medical group is treated based on the politics of the region that's exactly
0: right I'm glad that I'm not the only one because sometimes you know you're alone in this and definitely with back table we can reach other urologists and get the word out but most of the time we are alone you don't know what's going on. You said, Like you mentioned, you have many bosses, but at the end of the day, you talk to one and they have to wait for approvals of somebody else. And it goes on and it's been six months and you still don't have an answer for a simple solution. So even though everybody has a boss hat, but not many people can make decisions or they
1: don't want to make decisions. I think honestly, in these positions, people don't want to own the decision because if they own it publicly, they then are liable if the decision loses. But then later, that's why in a lot of health systems, at least something I've noticed more locally, when urology wins, a lot of the people in senior leadership take credit for that win. Even though they owned collectively the decision, so a lot of people own it, they wanna collectively own the wins and they wanna collectively own the losses. So no one ever really owns the decision and it's a little bit of a hot potato game moving a tough decision from one person to another. So you definitely have to gain a consolidative base of leaders on board. And that's why there seems to be stagnancy, like you were describing, yeah, it takes six months to get things approved because various stakeholders are always weighing in. And then when you're
0: close to finally having a solution, they leave or they move to another hospital
1: and then it's, it's, it's <laughs> back to square one. Sure. <laughs> That's right. I joke around that when you really look at the C-suite of most health systems, and this is not certainly not speaking about mine or yours or anyone's in particular, I generally notice a trend that most of the senior leaders, like the heads of each of these corporations, as we call them, they really don't have a shelf life that's more than seven to 10 years. They usually have a shelf life of three to seven years. And so you really have to look at that. And, and, and if the health system itself... If all of these corporations that are some making money, some losing money, at the end of the day, they support the health system. If the health system overall is losing money year over year, then the senior leadership of that health system inevitably changes. That's just how that works. Exactly.
0: Jay, how about in your system? I mean, are you involved in the economic part of urology there or do you mainly just operational?
1: No, for those of you who are listening who may know me, and as well as, you know, my partners and colleagues and friends in the city that know me very well, I'm involved in all of it. So, yes, operationally, I think I'm very much involved economically, I'm very much involved and I've tried to understand the money and the money part of medicine. I think we went into medicine. I think a lot of us went into urology, certainly not because of the money. I think we went into it because it's a great field. I think we have a passion for the disease processes to try to take care of these patients. And also, I think there's great camaraderie and great citizenship within urology. And honestly, they're just great people. In urology and and ultimately the reason why i got interested in the economics of it and to try to understand the sort of operational and financial aspects of our field was because of what you and i just talked about i felt that in urology there's always decisions being made above urology that sometimes do not jive with what we want within urology and because of that i i always sort of remembered what a friend of mine told me which many of you may have heard, which is, listen, you're either going to be on that menu or you can help set the menu. So you might as well help set the menu, try to learn the processes, is what I was told. And and I took that advice wholeheartedly.
0: As specific of urology, I don't think, at least where I'm at, they don't comprehend what a urology is. I mean, I think we can walk both worlds in terms of we have office, we have surgery, we're not purely doing procedures in the, in the office. We're not just doing in the OR. We have a mixture of that. And sometimes I think that presents a struggle because they have multiple models of, uh, for example, I will talk about the GIs in our practice or group. They don't do anything in the office. It's just seeing patients and then they do everything in the hospital. And, and sometimes when, when I, exactly when we ask for stuff in the office, because I don't know a lot of things that are going for BPH, for example, they're office-based. So to keep up with times and and patient satisfaction, patient demand, we have to try to do more stuff in the office, but sometimes the OR 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 the hospital side is not aligned
1: with those ideas. That's absolutely right. So I will say it, I will summarize what you just said in a different way that's, I think, more economical. Now the hospital corporation, which is one aspect of the health system, wants you to do surgeries in the hospital urology as a field is really moving towards office-based procedures. So when, you know, Jose, me, or my partners try to do more and more office procedures, the hospital corporation sort of says to the medical group, well, listen, you know, Jose is doing less surgery here. What's that all about? Why is he doing less surgery here? We want him to do more surgery here. Now, the problem with that is urology is a field and reimbursements, in general, are moving towards more outpatient-based and or office-based treatments. Now, the truth of the matter is, medical groups that have urologists, generally, in health systems, are budgeted to lose money. That sounds crazy. I wanna break that comment down a little bit. What I mean by that is, the expense of the urologist, so your salary, your malpractice, your benefits, maybe you have a stipend for educational or travel stipend, those types of things all add up to a certain amount of money, hundreds of thousands of dollars really. You then have to generate enough revenue to cover that expense. But more than that, you also have to cover enough revenue to cover the expense of all the staff that support you as a physician. So when you're in the medical group and you're a medical group employee, and your practice, Jose, and our practice here in Philadelphia, you have numerous staff within your office, whether it's your front desk, your, the nurses, or, or MAs, or LPNs, whatever that might be, PAs, for example, in the office, all of those salary lines and benefits add up as expenses. And ultimately, that budget line of the expense needs to be met with equivalent revenue in order for you to sort of, let's call it, break even. Now, in the medical group, in most health systems, to my knowledge, urology groups in large health systems that are employed physicians lose money. So you say, well, that's crazy. We're urologists. How do you lose money? Well, it's really not that we're losing money. We might be losing money arbitrarily based on some budget sheet. But the downstream contributions of what Jose may do or what I might do makes money. So maybe we send a lot of patients to radiology for imaging studies. Maybe our surgeries or our patients generate surgeries that are done in the hospital setting. And hospital settings actually make substantially more if we do let's say an inpatient operation, a large inpatient operation might make a lot more money. So yes, so a hospital needs to ultimately function with doctors. Let's be clear, without doctors or subspecialists, hospitals can't function. But you also don't want to be seen as a quote-unquote loss. So to Jose's earlier point about doing office-based treatments, if you're doing office-based treatments only Healthcare systems might look at those office-based treatments and say, hey, listen, we're happy to do these treatments. However, we need to show a positive return here, and we're already losing money. So if we're losing money just in the medical group, you need to show me some sort of an argument here about how you're going to create money downstream in another corporation. Because if you can create money in another corporation, well, then listen, the health system still does okay. Does that make sense? It makes
0: perfect sense. So Jay, going back to showing your worth, so you need to show them, okay, so I I see 40 patients in the office daily and half of them I send them for a CT scan at, at your facility. Is that how it works? I mean, is that
1: what you have to tell the system? Here's how I would say it. I mean, ultimately, there's the way that you are perceived And there's the way that I've tried to perceive the people that are on our team, as well as myself. And how I look at that is, is let's try to simplify this. I think of value, because what we're really talking about right now is value. And I perceive value as a healthcare system employee, really in four domains. One domain is clinical productivity one domain is practice or departmental service, service to your department or hospital. The other is, let's say, academics or research. And the fourth is teaching. So in most systems, the third and fourth bucket is very difficult to quantify. So if you're in a non-academic practice, then of course your academics or research might not be valued. If you're If you don't have a medical school affiliation and you're not teaching, the teaching bucket is tough to quantify and tough to sort of value. But the first two buckets, clinical productivity and practice or departmental or hospital-based service, those are actually universal. If you think about any healthcare system, clinical productivity and hospital-based service is something that is, I think, ubiquitous for these systems. And clinical productivity in today's world of America is best quantified, not, and this is not my quantification system, but clinical productivity is quantified by the healthcare systems with one metric, the RVU, the Relative Value Unit. And, you know, I hear this a lot from our trainees, and a lot of people talk about RVUs. I think just amongst my friends, and I'm even, to, I'm sure Jose, we can talk about RVUs a lot. Yeah. <laughs> but ultimately, RVUs is how most healthcare administrators, non doctors, perceive the value of a doctor. And you're, as a urologist, simply put, the more RVUs you do, the more value you generate in the clinical productivity bucket that I just described. But I did not want you to think that's the only bucket. I actually think there are four buckets. The only bucket that I think is a universally discussed bucket, maybe two of them, are the clinical productivity bucket and the hospital or departmental-based service bucket. I'll talk more about in in a bit. But I think that's what you're getting at when you talk about radiology and all these other things. It's how is your clinical productivity justified? And it's with RVUs. I'll pause. Do you have any questions or thoughts about RVUs? We can talk a lot about it. My thing with RVU, I think, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's,
0: it's very good. It's just that, for example, a vasectomy. My, my thing is how much the RVU is worth for some type of procedures. That is, I mean, sometimes you say, well, is it worth it? Uh, as circumcision. should I continue doing it? I'm doing it for the service. So, you know, I mean, that came from CMS and that's, I guess, that's not on us. I mean, all. the the system, the health system can pay a little bit more with RVU, and we can get into that later. But yeah, I think sometimes that RVU compared to other uh, specialties, not sure how urology, I think that the day that they distributed the RVUs, there was no urology in Washington deciding this, but that's a a
1: different topic. So I will say about RVUs real quick to give, you know, the people listening a little bit of background on this. Now, RVUs, I think, really for any encounter you have with a patient there's probably an rvu number that can be generated to justify that encounter and to simplify that comment i would say really rvus and revenue is ultimately quantified based on let's say office or hospital encounter office procedures like you just described one vasectomy an office procedure or or procedures so if those three mini buckets Office or hospital encounter, office procedure, and OR procedures all together, I think generate an RVU value individually as well, and you can add them up together. Now, certain practices and certain institutions utilize RVUs to help quantify their you know, clinical productivity, and other hospital systems, most of these are private practice employed sort of groups, but some hospital systems might employ those three mini buckets of those encounters for collection-based billing. So they might look at either system, RVU-type system or collection-based system. And RVU, again, to your point, these are numbers that are arbitrarily set, usually by CMS. So CMS gives a recommendation about what they believe that number should be. So for a vasectomy, It's X number of RVUs. I agree with you, Jose. It's not a lot of RVUs whatsoever. And each individual hospital practice plan and medical group is actually the ultimate decider of how many RVUs they're going to give for that procedure. So if Jose is a high volume vasectomy doer and that institution values Jose's vasectomy performance, he might be able to go to them and say, hey, listen, you know, this is not worth my while doing these low RVU procedures unless you can sweeten the pot for me to do a little more of these. And or because we have such great outcomes with our vasectomies, can you, let's say, increase my RVUs per procedure? Then yes, that's an individual decision by that medical group. And you have to be able to explain to them why you're worth it, why you're worth it to do it. And that might be what you were referring to
0: earlier. Exactly. So definitely, I mean, in our group, we have a reconstructive urologist, and he has a different contract and understandable because we're sending all the complications and everything that nobody else wants to do. And it it takes time. Every time he see a patient, it's going to be 20, 30 minutes, 40 minutes discussing the options, outcomes, all that, and then the surgery. And sometimes in the RBU model, reconstructive urology, you don't get that much. So completely understand why there needs to be some exceptions. And like you said, showing your worth and explaining that the facility,
1: the health system needs to accommodate for that. I mean, ultimately, though, Jose, I'm a big believer that there are certain groups when I've heard, you know, just talking to my friends, where there's what I would call, like you just, you actually, I think, were very complimentary over different needs for different fields within urology. But so many times I hear of stories of different practices having infighting over a certain physician doing, let's throw an arbitrary number, 14,000 RVUs, but another physician doing, let's say, 7,000 RVUs. And the 14,000 RVU doctor feels like they're working much harder than the 7,000 RVU doctor. Ultimately, though, the scales are a little broken. Let's be honest. If you are a very busy vasectomy doctor, or you're a very busy high RVU proceduralist, Your RVUs are ultimately going to be different, even if you're working very hard in both domains. It's going to ultimately be a different number. I like to believe that the best groups function well if there's less infighting internally and urologists pull together to honestly fight above them. In these medical groups, above the urologist in charge to really the senior most administrator that you're usually going to be more successful if urologists, I hate to say it this way, but band together. Exactly. And that's one of the
0: points that I wanted to talk to you about negotiating RBU. I mean, like I said, sometimes that person that is the reconstructive urology, he probably needs to negotiate on his own versus us that there are, we're general urologists and then we can band together and we completely understand his side. But sometimes what we need, I guess, or what we ask for is different than the needs of another depending on the subspecialty. That's absolutely right. A couple of you like I said, a year ago, we started meeting and discussing our RVU pay because the hospital next to us or, or the, the competition of our system, we know that they got paid more per RVU. Then we started and we were covering the process. They already agreed, but we band together. And and it was was very formal. I mean, it never was a heated argument or anything like that with leadership.
1: And yeah, we were able to negotiate and I think it's gonna be good for the future. Just to sort of speak to that point that you were bringing up about what happened within a year ago to your partners and yourself with this negotiation, let's try to be clear. The job of the healthcare system is to keep physicians happy, hopefully that's the job, but to take care of patients, but to also ultimately have a positive bottom line and to make money. So when you, in your group, in urology, are trying to, you know, get paid, ultimately they try to establish in these medical groups scales to help justify how much they're actually paying you. And ordinarily, physician employment contracts in healthcare systems both in academic as well as in healthcare system-based non-academic positions, really look at, as we talked about, RVUs as a metric, but they also look at salary scales and or dollar per RVU payment agreements. And what I mean by that, and I think what Jose is referring to, is these systems where, for example, they'll say, well, here's the deal, Jay. For you, we'll use easy numbers. We'll say, if you hit 10,000 RVUs, we're happy to pay you X amount of dollars. But if you hit 11,000 RVUs, for the extra 1,000 RVUs you did, we will pay you, I'll throw an arbitrary number out there, $50 per RVU extra is what they'll say. And that's what Jose is talking about, is that dollar per RVU amount is honestly very negotiable. And that number, I think, is negotiable best if the group that you represent is banded together. If you try to do it individually, a lot of times that doesn't work. And ultimately though, you have to recognize are using a scale. And like any negotiation, you don't want to negotiate yourself out of a deal because the way to do that would be to ask, instead of $50 an RVU is to ask for $250 an RVU. And the hospital will say, you're crazy. We don't need you. And then you've lost because you don't really want to be on that end of any negotiation. But you also don't want to be taken advantage of, certainly. And the best way to do this, I think, is more than having conversations like this on these types of great forums like Backtable Urology. I think it's honestly having transparency amongst urologists over, one, how they're compensated, what kinds of scales are being used, what kinds of metrics are being used. Because ultimately, the senior leadership in healthcare systems They have all the information. They know what they're paying everybody. They know what they're paying all the other doctors and all the other specialties, and we don't know any of it. And so for us to sort of, let's say, win or advance, we really need to, I think, try to understand the language. And some of that is just being transparent amongst ourselves.
0: So yeah, one of our group, he paid for a list. And actually, that list gave all the RVUs nationwide, all the the RVUs in Florida... And we used that list and we ha- we knew how much each of us got back to the system or, or how much they made a- from each of us. And we used that list to negotiate and it was good. It was very good. And we also knew that across the street, the other guys were getting like eight or nine RVU dollars more than us. So that all helped. And we had a, a leaders that were, they wanted to keep us happy.
1: So it all worked, worked out. So that's fantastic. Let me spend maybe two minutes speaking about, I think, what you just said. I'll try to provide more information to whoever's listening. So ultimately, these employment contracts sort of use metrics, right? I just said that. They try to use metrics to determine how much people get paid. RVUs are the ordinary metric for determining compensation. And what does that actually mean? So for example, if I were to say, I just used a number 10,000 RVUs, and I might say 10,000 RVUs is worth a certain amount of money, and Jose might think it's worth a different amount of money. Well, there are companies that have come out, and have basically created scales that help determine what RVU levels generate what level salary. Let me list out a few sort of common scales. There's the MGMA scale, there's Sullivan Cotter, there's the American Medical Association. I think the ACS has a scale. There are various scales, but each healthcare system basically chooses and uses the scale that they want. i want to stop you a little bit just so that they know
0: we use the first one the MGA, but the hospital was using Sullivan, and it was more or less similar, but there was uh, discrepancies, and that's how we
1: used to negotiate, but just continue, Jay, sorry for the interruption. That's perfect, right? Yeah. That's exactly how it works, and each of these scales are based on surveys. They're different categories, and like you just sort of telling the audience, it's based on practice type, where the practice location is, geography, and then it's broken down in percentiles saying the 50th percentile is this many RVUs and this level salary. The 75th percentile is this many RVUs and this level salary. And you might look at the Sullivan-Cotter scale and the 50th percentile might be 10,000 RVUs and you might look at the MGMA scale and guess what, that 50th percentile might be 6,000 RVUs. And so you're right, the salaries change dramatically based on what scale you're using and your level of advocacy within your group and transparency and understanding of those types of scales allow you to sort of win at the, at the end of the day. So Jay, in terms of going back to
0: showing your worth, what do you recommend as, let's say, you're three, four years into your job, you think that you're going to stay in that system. What do you recommend for that person to
1: do to be happier, I guess, if they want to increase economically? I think on the macro level, you need to understand how you've demonstrated value in those four buckets. And I'll say them again, the clinical productivity bucket, you need to understand if it's measured by collections or RVUs, I think you need to understand what you have done there within RVUs, I would say, and collections. That is really an understanding of your office and hospital encounters, your office procedures and your OR procedures. So the quantity as well as the next version or the next bucket is the quality. And so I talked about sort of your value to your department and to your hospital. So are you doing well from a you know catheter-associated UTI rate or a surgical site infection rate? Those types of things, again, have meaningful implications for the downstream hospital corporations. So understanding that value, I think, is important. Understanding, again, if you're in a health system that values academics or research or teaching, I think that's important as well. But ultimately, it's usually those first two buckets with the first bucket weighing in more. Now, to Jose's point, by year three or year four, I would try to fully understand those metrics for you. In a good department, a good leader should frankly share all of those with you. So if you have trouble sort of getting a hold of that information, to me, that's actually source of concern. You should be able to get that if you work in a health system. because they actually would want you to do more as well so for you to understand what level of productivity you have i think is important and for you to understand what level of downstream contribution you have with the either the number of tests you're ordering or that's actually harder to quantify i think what's easier to quantify is the number of downstream surgeries you're generating either for your partners now you said you have a reconstructionist who might be doing reconstructive work in the hospital. Now, if you've generated a lot of referrals to that reconstructionist, well, that's important to know. Or if you generate a lot of referrals to other specialties in general surgery or plastic surgery, orthopedics, et cetera, that's important to know. But ultimately, like most things, knowledge is power. If you're able to quantify your value in terms of some of these buckets or mini buckets that I just talked about, it really emboldens you. And from a contract standpoint, as well as from an overall worthwhile value standpoint, to have the conversation with yes, your urology leader, but probably also a senior administrator within that medical group. And in terms of economics, I mean,
0: you can give samples, tempo or Fox Chase. How often do you think, in general,
1: contracts should be renegotiated? Yes, yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, generally, what we've done here for contracts is we do the first employee or first-time contract is usually three years. When you're first brought in, it's a three-year contract. And let's say you're straight out of training or you move to the area new and you don't have a practice or you don't have referrals and those sorts of things. Generally, that first three-year contract is actually there's no RVU requirement. You just have to really focus on building your practice. Now, the problem with that, as Jose could attest, is the health system is actually taking a huge gamble on you by bringing you in, because most urologists are very talented, but some urologists might be less, I'll call it less talented. And when they put zero RVUs or very few RVUs behind your first three years, a lot of it is just what I started off this podcast with Jose talking about. A lot of it is actually just expense. So really, those first three years, you're building your name, your presence, your referrals with primary care doctors or other specialists, and you're trying to sort of make a mark. If you are successful at doing that by the end of your third year, a lot of times the RVU piece, at least here in Philadelphia and in a lot of other big cities that I'm familiar with, a lot of times that next contract is when you start to discuss some of these RVU and or salary particulars. And many times in that second contract, that too is roughly two to three years. Now, there are some corporations where they say, listen, it's a year-to-year contract. Or in some corporations, they say it's what we call an evergreen contract. It's a year-to-year contract with a six-month out, meaning the contract just keeps rolling over and you've got six months to give notice if you ever want to leave. I'm generally a believer of trying to secure longer-term contracts if you're able to. But again, no company is going to want to secure you for a longer-term contract if you haven't secured enough value. And it all comes back to sort of value and those buckets that I talked about in terms of what you're able to generate and what your health system perceives of what you've generated but to answer your question that was a long-winded answer but to answer your question first contract around two to three years every subsequent contract also every two to three years unless it's an evergreen situation where it's a yearly contract and jay in terms of the
0: rvu what do you expect do you think it's going to continue to increase
1: year by year or what do you expect from that Yeah, I mean, I've had administrators, non-urologists tell me, listen, I'm happy to pay any urologist any amount of money, but there's an RVU amount that goes with that, is how they say it. And so I will say that I think in most contracts and in most practices, they ultimately expect you to do a little more every year for you to get paid a little more. Sometimes in tough systems and in tough markets, they expect you to do a little more to get paid the same year to year. Where they'll say, listen, if you're getting paid X amount of money this year, you got to give me a little more if you still want the same salary next year. And you might think that's crazy. But in high-pressure cooker environments, major, major markets, they, again, are poised to create systems like that. Because I hate to say it, Jose... Sometimes they might perceive certain fields like urology as more replaceable because it's a major market. They're happy to recruit people in. But that's why it comes back to developing your practice and your brand and your own sense of value in those first several years of your employment contract because you don't want a hospital to want to try to replace you because that means ultimately, I hate to say it, you didn't show enough value because they're willing to actually take a loss for a couple of years if they bring in someone new. So hopefully that doesn't happen to you.
0: No, no, (laughs) I'm good where I'm at right now. So yeah, you mentioned the three A's. Yeah, and I think it's not just for your first job or your first year. You have to keep those three A's throughout your work life. Affable, available, able. Yeah. That's right. If sometimes, if the medical group wants to go another route, maybe the hospital will support you. If you're doing the service, if you're available to the hospital, they will fight for you. And I have seen
1: it. That's right. And more so, I'll be even more blunt about that. At the end of the day, the hospital can choose to give money to the medical group in the correct situation if they want to value Jose's services or my services or someone else. If that corporation chooses to value that urologist or heart surgeon or brain surgeon or whatever it might be, or bariatric surgeon... They can choose to float money at the end of the year from one company to another company. But in order to do that, you really have to show that value to that other corporation.
0: Jay, in terms of inflation, everything is more expensive. Do you think our relative value unit per dollar will increase with time or
1: or at some point will just start decreasing? I hope it doesn't decrease. I'd like to think the ability for dollar per RVU to increase... I think is up to us as a field. The more transparent we are as a field, the more we are willing to sort of band together. Let's use your example in Florida and Orlando as a case study. You knew what a certain group was doing nearby. If your group and that group collectively agreed to not go below a certain amount, it doesn't matter what a hospital system says, they have to pay more. I think our challenge in urology is always going to be being able to band together in our numbers. At the end of the day, a healthcare system does not perceive a urologist like they do a cardiac surgeon. Cardiac surgeons are seen as very rare breed type specialties where you might have a small handful of cardiac surgeons, but urologists aren't seen that way. Urologists are generally seen as people that are more replaceable. I will say though... In a good sense, I don't think urologists are that replaceable. It's just that that culture needs to change from healthcare administration to provider practice to be more positive towards urology. And the best way to do that, I think, is to have consistency, transparency, and really collaborativeness amongst other urologists in these types of conversations exactly and like you said i mean sometimes that's the hard part but at least in
0: my situation we have a good group and, and hopefully stays like that and, and we'll continue moving forward
1: well i think it's probably that most groups in urology are good groups because again it comes back to why we all chose urology we most of us chose urology because of the people we met along the way and most of those people are just good people and so i'd like to think that you know a lot of these groups do not have an uphill battle here because a lot of the people within urology are still very good, good-natured, and kind-hearted people.
0: So Jay, a- anything else you want to add? I mean, we, we can continue talking about this all night, but I think we covered a lot of points. I think the, the message came
1: through. I mean, I would close with saying that urology is a fantastic field. I'm so excited that we were asked to talk about this for the Backtable Urology community. I'm hopeful that people take away from this that, ultimately, we are a part of a greater whole. And in order for us, I think, to be successful, we have to try to understand some of the operational aspects, some of the economic aspects, because the patient care aspects I think most urologists are fantastic at. And unless we understand some of these principles that we talked about in this past hour, I think we might be on the menu instead of sort of help set the menu. And I think that's a great point because
0: sometimes, I mean, some urologists, they prefer, hey, I'll just treat the patient. I don't care about anything else. But definitely, we need to get involved, and that's, I guess that's the what has been happening for the past years in the medical field. We just have been focused on treating the patient, and we have let other people run the show, and we're in the situation now, and, and we need to wake up. That's right. Okay, so Jay, thanks again for being here. I think we're going to talk at some point about reconstructive urology. Uh, You mentioned radiation side effects and what to do with them.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm excited to talk about a lot of reconstruction as well. And I look forward to maybe another day where we can do it. I will say that, you know, these topics for me are all passion projects and passion topics and Again, to the many of you that reached out to me after one of the conversations I had with Aditya Pagrodhi about value, please keep your comments coming, and please reach out to us, anything further that you would like us to chat about, we're happy to do it. Thank you, Jay. Thank you so much for
0: listening.
1: with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Gelbrun. Social media and PR by Chi
0: Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.